what do they call it? Your doppelganger? Like everybody always says that I look like Christian Bale. Really? Yeah. I guess I could. Yeah. When the movie that. American Psycho first came out and I was in my 20s and I was hitting the gym like two to three hours a day. Oh, you're definitely a psycho. <laughs> <laughs> I've got an acronym for you. Oh, more acronyms. Wonderful. What is it? It's the IBE, the Industrial Buying Engine. It's the newest innovation by the team at Thomas to help you grow your industrial business. You know, I know a thing or two about the Industrial Buying Engine. You can drive more revenue by reaching the 1.5 million verified buyers on Thomas. It's a streamlined three-step process. First, you message buyers. Second, you quote projects. And third, you get paid. The industrial buying engine is accessible from the company's ThomasNet dashboard. Get your free profile today at thomasnet.com slash claim to get started with Thomas and the industrial buying engine. And we're going to sweeten the deal. Our listeners get a 25% off annual subscription with the code CHIPS25, C-H-I-P-S 25. Welcome to Making Chips. I'm your host, Nick Goldner, and I'm here closing out 2022 and diving into 2023 with my partner, co-host, friend, and cliffhanger specialist. You know how I'm going to dive into 2023? Off a cliff. In my Speedo. <laughs> Please no. If you do that, I'm going to jump off a cliff. <laughs> what was that cliffhanger text? What was that about? So like, you'll do this all the time. You'll text me and say, hey, I've got this really important thing I want to talk to you about, or I've got this big idea or whatever, and I'll text you back like a question mark. Like, Okay, go on. Oh, yeah, I did do that too. And then you'll be like, oh, I'm really busy. I can't talk to you. Like, it's what do they call it? Clickbait? <laughs> yeah, you do that. Like, but I do it conversation bait. Yeah, exactly. You're like, no, I really want you to care about this. And then my personality is the type where it's like, uh, yeah, you I don't, don't like want to just sit there and wonder stuff. You just so. need to stay tuned to making chips to find out. If the sound of a machine tool removing metal gets your blood pumping, then you are Metal Working Nation. This is Making Chips, where we talk all things metalworking, engineering and design, production and tooling combined with business best practices, technology, marketing, news, and new media for manufacturing professionals. Here are your hosts. Let's make some chips. Okay, no more cliffhangers. What was your favorite manufacturing memory of 2022? I think that mine, of course, it was IMTS. I mean, that was amazing. It was great to see so many faces that I hadn't seen in a long time. I remember being in the press area. We got press passes, which is kind of nice. And I was in the bathroom near the press area. And I was in one of the stalls and I forgot to close and lock the door. And Titan came in and walked in on me while I was going to the bathroom. So <laughs> that was kind of funny. And he was like, oh, sorry. And he like walked out. <laughs> so, <laughs> that is kind of a surprising memory. So that was fun. And I got to, of course, finish wash my hands and then give him a hug. And we chatted for a little bit. That's awesome. And yeah, then, it was great. Yeah. I mean, IMTS was amazing. I mean, that's like the obvious one. But I think one of the other big ones was going to the speaking engagement that we did in Waterloo, Iowa, and just talking to the other manufacturing leaders in the Iowa marketplace and getting to know them and kind of throwing some questions back and forth and just had a good time with yeah, those Yeah, shout folks. out to Hawkeye Community College for putting that together. And they're doing awesome things, really. They're really focusing on the trades and they put a great 
audience together. It wasn't huge, but everyone was super engaged. And because it wasn't so large, we were able to interact with people. It was awesome. And then if I can mention another one, I think it was 2022, or the, although, you know, things just really blur. <laughs> Did we go to Southern Indiana in 2022 to go to the Nix companies? Yeah, for that that's, speaking that's engagement? where we really kind of, our relationship with Matthew Nix. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that was also another highlight. And so if I could say, like, speaking of that, speaking of Matthew Nix, so I know we've kind of hinted around this. We posted some stuff on LinkedIn, but the future of making chips is going to be really fun. We're doing something a little bit different. I don't even know if other podcasts are doing this. I think it's really innovative and it really is intended to bring the community of manufacturing leaders together because it's not just about me. It's not just about Jason Zenger. It's not just about Nick Olner. It's about the community. Yeah, we're trying to decrease so that like the other leaders in the community can increase. Are you quoting John? <laughs> nice. <laughs> but none of us are Jesus. So like, don't try <laughs> no, to go there. But you know what I mean. Yeah, right? I do. Like, so it's not about us. And so we want to make it about the community. And Matthew Nix happens to be one of the manufacturing leaders who's going to be one of our new guest hosts for this upcoming season. We're going to have this be seasonal where we're going to have different guest hosts coming on. And I think it's going to be really good. I mean, we're going to bring on really seasoned, experienced manufacturing leaders, people who have been out on the shop floor, really know the ins and outs of everything. And so Matt's going to be one of them. And I'm really looking forward to this format of getting their perspective, them bringing their own guests on. And instead of them being the interviewee, they're going to be the interviewer. Yeah. And I think that's what's so cool about this is the diversity of the group we've chosen. Yes. It's all sorts of different industries that they focus on, different personalities, different parts of the country. And yeah, I'm really pumped about it. Absolutely. Speaking of like relationships that we've developed and how we've seen people grow and how we've seen the community grow, you and I were we're just talking before this about like some comments we saw on LinkedIn and you were like, we should put that on the show. So yeah, you brought up Ian, who used to be an employee of Making Chips, used to be on the Making Chips team. Yeah, yeah. So he's like, you guys may see him out there. He's really grown his brand. He's a video specialist. He's a great storyteller unbelievable photographer. And when you connect with people on LinkedIn, you see their comments and you see what they think and what they feel. And he wrote something as a comment to somebody else's post. And I really liked it. And it was about the movie, The Machinist. That was a very interesting movie. Yeah. With Christian Bale. What do they call it? Your doppelganger? Like everybody always says that I look like Christian Bale. Really? Yeah. I guess I could. Yeah. When the movie American Psycho first came out and I was in my 20s and I was hitting the gym like two to three hours a day. You're definitely a psycho. (laughs) (laughs) And I've been called a psycho before. Yeah. I think the point that the article or the poster of the article was making is like, hey, this is a bad movie for the machining industry because Christian. It gives a bad impression, they're saying. Yeah. And so Ian's comment, I'm just going to pull it up. So the post says why the machinist is a terrible movie for machinists. And the whole point is like it's dark and dangerous and everything like that. Ian writes, I love this movie thematically and aesthetically, but these are fair points in the article. One counterpoint I'll suggest is that the perception of reality in this entire film is skewed by Christian Bale's character being an unreliable narrator. And I've never heard this term unreliable yes. narrator, so, so it's like explain a l- to me what that is. Literary term. I like geeking out on this kind of stuff, but I'd never heard that term yeah, before. Yeah, me too. That's why we're talking about it. So when you can't trust the narrator of the film, a lot of times it's like a first person film. Like I think Memento is another one like this where he's kind of like losing his mind the whole mm-hmm. time. Then it's an unreliable narrator. Or if the narrator's a liar or when the narrator, instead of like leading you to the truth, like kind of distracts you from mm-hmm. the truth and it's your job as the viewer so to figure it's like, it out. Because there's a lot of books that are written from like omnipresent standpoint. And then there's kind of like this external narrator that knows everything in a truthful manner about what's going on. But what you're talking about here is where the narrator is the character 
and you can't trust them. You can't yeah. trust what they're actually saying. That complicates the storyline. Yeah, you have to figure out why they don't see reality the right mm, way. So interesting. It's just really cool because Ian says, hey, it's a great intersection of two of my favorite industries, filmmaking and manufacturing. So, And that's what we do. We try to like collect people from all over the place who come at things with a different perspective, and that's awesome. Well, one of the things that I can tell you about making chips is that we are reliable narrators. We speak the truth here. You can always get the truth from us. Yeah, so. Jason is reliable. He's yeah, not a psycho, yeah, even though he true. may look like Christian Bale in that movie. Yeah. So how about some manufacturing news, Nick? Yeah. So talking about like bringing two different perspectives together, the, the news that I chose is from Senator Marco Rubio, and it's co-written with a Democrat, Ro Kahana, and it's about manufacturing. So manufacturing needs federal funding. Yeah. So if I could read the title, it's an op-ed. So U.S. manufacturing needs federal funding to protect national security spur innovation boom. And this is the article that you brought up is on CNNBC. And it's about these two co-sponsoring the National Development Strategy and Coordination Act. So, And what does this act say? How about I just read the article? If you want to jump in and comment. Just as long as you read it in a non-boring manner. For decades, the United States okay. enjoyed. You don't have to be that. Okay. Okay. Just, <laughs> just be normal. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. For decades, the United States enjoyed the strongest and most innovative economy in the world, driving growth and delivering prosperity to millions of American workers and families. But we grew complacent. We offshored our factories and allowed unfair trading practices from non-market economies like China's to undermine our industries. That's very true. Absolutely. If I could interject. And I remember somebody told me once that President Bush, I believe that it was, was such a, I guess, free market capitalist that he was like, who cares if things get sent over to China? Well, I think that's a bad way of looking at things. And yeah. so you've got that kind of balancing act that tension, where yeah. that tension between the two different parties that we have in the United States, where you would think both would be pro-manufacturing and they are to certain degrees because like the Republican Party is more pro-entrepreneurialism, but the Democratic Party is kind of pro-union and unions are a big part of manufacturing. So yes. go on. So the article continues. So now we're waking up to the consequences. A lack of economic resilience due to overextended supply chains, serious and potentially long-lasting vulnerabilities in national security, and the loss of good-paying jobs. Can I jump in? Yeah. Our duty is clear. Unless we rebuild America's productive capacity and invest in key industries, we will put our nation's economic prosperity and very sovereignty at risk. The federal government has the financing tools to chart a new and better course, but they are scattered across several agencies with little coordination or strategic direction. That's why we've joined forces to jumpstart a national project to restore American manufacturing leadership. They're speaking our language, yeah, Nick. exactly. And it continues to say, this is a shared purpose that can unify Americans. It is also work that can bring together elected officials from both sides of the aisle and bypass years of partisan gridlock in Washington. Not an easy feat in a narrowly divided Congress. What would our proposal entail? First, it would establish a new committee of cabinet-level agency heads, including the Secretaries of Treasury, Defense, Commerce, Energy, and Agriculture, the Director of the Small Business Administration, and others. This committee would be charged with developing a national development strategy, recommending investments to improve national security, strengthen domestic manufacturing, create good-paying jobs, and develop new technologies. You know what? You know who I think that they should ask to be a part of this? 
Making that's chips. me making chips. Yeah, are you? We're already yeah. like I mean, reading as we're saying. I mean, they should ask us to be a part of this new initiative. Should it go? All right, go on, Nick. Second, our proposal, the National Development Strategy and Coordination Act, would give this committee the authority to direct the Department of Treasury's Federal Financing Bank to achieve its goals. Under our legislation, the bank would receive twenty billion to identify, supplement, and supercharge loans made by other federal financing facilities, such as SBAs, Small Business Innovation Company, or the Department of Energy's loan program. This would bring overdue strategic coordination to our federal loan system and inject much-needed long-term capital into critical industries. Okay, lastly, this model isn't new. George Washington and Alexander Hamilton, shout out to that play if none of you have seen it, it's a really good play, use public investment to catapult the U.S. from backwater colonies to a country with world-class diversified economy. Franklin Roosevelt and Donald Nelson's war production board helped America win World War II and become the greatest power in the world. Ronald Reagan's administration advanced American semiconductor production and enabled the development of the interwebs. Yeah, which Al Gore invented, of course. Yeah, of course he did. (laughs) During all of the most productive periods of our past, Americans used private-public partnerships to strengthen and bolster our economy. Why can't we do it again? That's a very good question. Senator Rubio and Representative Kahana. And what's so cool about this is like there's so much of this gridlock where no one can agree and nothing happens. If we can all agree on one thing, you know what it is, Nick? Manufacturing. Manufacturing. Yeah. Yes. It matters. And on I both think sides. that this is great. And even they talk about like making investments. I actually just applied for a grant. So as you know, we're a distributor of cutting tools, but one of the things that we also do is we actually manufacture bandsaw blades. So we have a welding facility, we weld, we grind, we sandblast, do all that kind of stuff to make bandsaw blades. And we just applied for a grant with our county in order to get some funding in order to bolster up that side of our manufacturing. And it would be great if a lot of that federal investment was available. Yeah. Yeah. I know my brother, who's the president of one of our companies, Hennig, he was working with like some organizations locally and some government stuff to get a grant last year. And the result of the grant is this really cool measure your own chip conveyor and like produce a CAD model. Yeah. It's it's like a configurator for That's cool. Actually, mine's going to be- what I applied for is it'd be very similar to that, where it's going to be like a bandsaw blade configurator. Too. Yeah, it had to have some digital elements to exactly. get the exactly. Well, that's good. I'm glad that you brought this up as manufacturing news. I think that this is important. I think that there is a wealth of manufacturing leaders out there who could really help our political representatives just to strengthen this. So I think that this is good. Yeah. Awesome. So as we look back and we review 2022, my episode is going to be about performance. Let's get into it. Like, how do we do our performance reviews? What have we learned from performance reviews? And let's talk about that because it's important. And to be honest with you, I'm not on the ball with performance reviews like I should be. So it is something that I've tasked one of my new team members, Mike Ruge, who is going to be accountable for performance reviews. And he started doing that. And I think that's more, you've mentioned kind of like your dad's style. Like I've been kind of more that like flyby performance review. So I had mentioned before on this podcast, when I go in the office, first thing I do is I say hi to everybody, ask them how they're doing, like have that personal time with everybody to make a connection. But I also take that time to do little like mini reviews on a regular basis. So I've never been really good at sitting down and 
doing reviews on all of my people in like a very formal way. So I've researched it a lot, but I definitely like to have that conversation and learn more. I think it's super valuable to make sure that like no one's surprised by the official review. Like I think official reviews are necessary and there's all sorts of HR reasons why you should actually like document performance reviews. Like what you just described of just making sure like most of my employees weren't like surprised by what was in the review because we've been talking all year. Like this is going well, this isn't going so well, let's work on this. So then when the actual review comes out, it's really valuable because they're like, yeah, that's kind of the theme of the pros and cons of yeah, my year. So I've got two little anecdotes as it relates to this. One, I was talking to two different manufacturing leaders. So these are people who run a manufacturing company. One is the owner and CEO. The other one is the non-owner and CEO. So one of them that was the owner and CEO, he said to me, this person started out really great and now he's not so great. And it's like, how do you get to the point where you're not just falling off the cliff? You know what I mean? How do you make sure that you're having those very open and honest conversations as things go along and making sure that you're saying, okay, these are the corrective actions that you need to be taking. And then the second one, a little bit of a different scenario. He was hired to be the CEO. And then all of a sudden, the owner was like, well, I kind of want to be CEO again and just wasn't ready to give up the reins, which is very common. And that happens. And he was very fair to the person that was the hired CEO, but he did have a title change. He's very fair in so much that we didn't change his compensation package and stuff like that. But it's like, how do you make so sure- So who had the title change? The person who was hired? The person that was hired. So yeah. they had to like say, hey, you're not going to actually be the CEO. You're going to be operations leader. Whatever. Or yeah. Like but I mean, they were still very good to them. Sure. And so the question is like, how do you make that transition smoother? You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And do this in a way that is going to be good for both parties. And I think one of the things that it comes down to is like when you're doing these reviews, for me, at the very foundational aspect, and I talked about this and I'm going to be giving a new presentation to my team for our new strategic vision. So I actually outlined this in the new strategic vision that I'm going to be giving to my company. But one of the things that I told them is that I want all of our communication to be clear, honest, and receptive to feedback. So that's how I want us to communicate yeah. with each other. Yeah, that's right in line with a performance review. There you go. But even when you're not actually giving a performance review, it should be that way. Absolutely. So how do you do yours? I'm not great at it. Okay. I've gotten a lot better. Learning. And you I put, sure have spent a lot of time on it in these past couple of weeks, yeah, right? Yeah, I put way more time into it than... I mean, because I've been kind of like whining about how much time I've been putting into performance reviews because I was also trying to use up my leftover vacation. Yeah, you were crying. I didn't do very well on the vacation part, I should say, but I put the most effort into the review part. And I think what took a lot of time is I created like a carbon copy of my review form and I gave it to each of my employees to do a self-review. So you know how you just talked about like we're talking all the time and it's really clear and right. it's transparent? Like how do you measure if it really is clear, if you're really on the same page? This like self-review thing that I created mm -hmm. was a way to do that. Okay. So basically you're having them review themselves and then you sit down and review with them based on that next. So it's like, okay, you wrote this, you're totally on the mark. I agree with you 100%. That's your weaknesses. These are your strengths. This is where you did well. This is where you need to improve. Or it brings you into conversation like, ah, uh, you're being too hard on yourself. Or it could be, ah, you're really not in touch with reality. You're not doing as well as you think you are. Yeah, exactly. So I created these Google Forms. It's super easy okay. to do. Like Google, Google Like a Google Forms. Doc? Yeah. It's okay. like a form though, right? Oh, okay. So you can okay. create like a Oh, survey. nice. I like that. I use that to do surveys for my team yeah. at large all the super time. Super easy. Like anybody can figure it out. So I created that and then I broke it down into like the different categories and there was two types of questions. There was rate yourself one to five, one week, five, awesome. And then it was like, okay, elaborate on that. Describe your performance in this area. So. I tried really hard to do it without reading their self-review and then compare 
And then in some cases I did make an adjustment, like, you know what, maybe I was a little off or whatever. But when I actually delivered the review, which is very important, you do this in person and you have a conversation about it. But like when I actually delivered the review, then it was like, here's yours, here's mine. Let's talk through it. I think if you make it all about the forms, it's awful because it's like you read an email, you read a text message, it just doesn't sound. Yeah. So what kind of questions did you ask? So I lead the sales and marketing team. So my sales team is divided by regional people who sell all the products, but focus on a region and product managers. We call them business development leaders who focus on one product, but every region. And so the questions were about, like, how do you do in supporting either the regional guys or your product managers? How do you do with new business development? Like, So you're asking very specific questions to yeah. what they do. So new like, business development, key account management, covering the entire territory, supporting your team, and building our brand. Okay. Which is the, so, the I mean, mark- you could change these questions to be very specific to that, whatever that job is that they're accountable to. If it's a machinist, it's going to be about on-time accuracy. Yes. And you absolutely should do that because I think like I'm kind of this rebel in the company because I don't use the official review forms. But I also have two cool bosses where like if you make a business case, like both the presidents of our companies, I was like, I think our review form is stupid. I don't think it's relevant to their actual job. I'm going to make my own. Any objection? So I did. I was just kind of one of those, we've always done it this way thing, but not anymore for me. So anyway, I I built out the self-reviews and they took them, I took them, and then we had an actual conversation about it. And it was really good. I think my biggest learning and my biggest takeaway from this is like, we try to have a theme for every year. That's something like my brother Noah does. He's like, Hey, this is the theme for the year. This is like kind of, okay. That's funny. Cause yeah, I have that for my strategic vision too. That's awesome. So, and I'm planning on talking that in a future episode, which we can talk about. Yeah. Yeah. So our theme was the year of the target, like Chinese calendar, like the year of the dragon. Sure. So ours was the year of the target. And what it meant is like, okay, we all have like a North Star KPI, like a really important metric that we need to own. Okay. And so own it. Think about your target. When you wake up in the morning, think about your target. Like when right. you're doing your monthly review on your performance, it should always be about the target. Okay. And I think the top performers in the self-reviews were like rating their performance in line with how they did in their actual target. Okay. So if you think like a CEO, like how do you know if you're a good CEO or not? Well, you have all the resources that you have in your company. And then it just comes down to like, how did the company perform? Right. Was it a profitable business? And so what happens in a lot of cases is that doesn't trickle down to all the other functions. It's like, well, I tried really hard. Maybe you were busy, but not productive. Right. Or like, I get along with everybody. Like, yeah, but maybe you don't hold anyone accountable. So it really does need to be about the target. And that's one of the things that I learned. Like we had some areas where we did really well and the people gave themselves reviews that were in line with that. We had other areas where we didn't do so well and the people still gave themselves like high marks. And it's kind of like, it allowed me to say, hey, look, this has nothing to do with if we like you or think you're a good person or whatever. Assume that I like you. Right. Because you're working on everything. Yeah. But we need to connect our personal performance to the target that we own. And your review should reflect like, how well do you acknowledge that? How well do you take ownership over that? And so that was kind of what I learned is like the people who did the best actually were able to make those connections better than others who were like, well, I tried really hard or whatever. So So do you think that the net result is going to be better performance through better understanding of what they're accountable for those people that you did the reviews with? Yeah, I'd hope so. So I asked them, what do you think about this self-review thing? And the people who put the time into it and like really 
thought about it, like thoughtful answers. They were also the people who said, yeah, it was really good. It allowed me to step back out of my day to day and think about like, okay, here's the ways that I'm actually being measured and here's what my boss thinks of. So I think it will have an impact there. Did that answer your question? Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I guess my next question is, okay, so speaking of like surveys, so like I send a survey out, a very comprehensive survey out to my team once a year. And I use that in order to guide our strategic vision. But I can send a survey, get their input, and then never do anything with it. So like with these reviews, how do you make sure that this was a good use of time and it's actually going to be used in a proactive way that's going to be good for them and good for you and good for the company? Yeah. So while like our theme of the year may change, I think the main areas that I measure these certain roles on are pretty constant. And I'm making a point not to like bring up a brand new survey next year. So like this copy of my review and the self-review is in their file. Next year, it'll be another one and it'll just keep going. But are you going to refer back to it throughout the year? Yeah, like it literally goes in this like big manila folder that I get. I pull it out and say, so last year we talked about this, this and this and here's how you did. Okay, so you're only going to refer to it once a year. Yeah, that's the other thing. I mean, should you refer to it like quarterly or something? We probably should. So that's an area where I know I can improve. Yeah, just bust it out like once a quarter and be like, hey, let's talk about your review and make sure you're still on track to achieving the improvements that you were supposed to do. Yeah, historically, our company's done like annual reviews at the end of the year. And as far as like the official one, I'm like you where people know where they're at. We do a monthly review of like the sales performance and all the regions and by product group and all that happens, but it's not a performance review. It's kind of like how the company's Like the one manufacturing leader that I talked to about him reviewing some of his machinists, he was like, I have a guy who used to be great. And now all of a sudden I'm having to rework some of his parts. Yeah. Because- they're not right. Yeah. And something like that probably should be talked about more frequently than quarterly. But I mean, like that should be in the performance review. That should be something that's referred back to. And it's like, it has that stopped. Are you making those improvements? You'll never regret documenting performance. Right. You'll never regret it. Yeah. If you come to the point where you do have to like part ways with somebody, you'll need that. Yeah. The question is, how do you do it in a way that is not so time consuming for you as the leader and manager? And I think your way of doing it with like the survey and could be good and you just print it out and you put it in their folder and be like, okay, let's down and talk and you bring it out and you take notes on the paper and do it in a way that's easy to manage. Yeah. Yeah. And the time consuming part is probably why it doesn't happen every quarter. Right. But Again, like this is another you'll never regret thing. Yeah. I don't think you'll ever regret like the time that goes into like reviewing performance and making sure you're on the same page with people. I'm always a big fan of like combining this is a total tangent, but like I'm always a big fan of combining digital and I don't know if manual is not the right word, but like tactile ways of managing things. So it's almost like you do it initially once a year with a survey digitally, and then after it's done, you review it and then you print it out and then you have it in a folder printed. And then once a quarter, you sit down with that person, you actually get the piece of paper out and you're like, okay, let's go through this with a pen and paper and talk about it and highlight and make notes. It's kind of funny. Like I didn't even think of it that way, but that's actually the result. It might be the easiest way to do it. Well, because I got to put the stuff in the folder and give it to HR. So I end up with what you just described. There you go. The other thing that I did really unofficially, and I think I'm going to do it more officially, is peer reviews. Okay. So I just described like kind of how I'm structured. So if you were one of my product managers, you would care very much about how each of the six regions are performing for your product. And if you're a regional person, you would care very much on like how well you're supported and what kind of a value proposition you're given to sell from all the product groups in your region. Or if you're a quality control manager, you're going to want to review your peers 
on the shop side, the machinists and everything. And I think if you're a machinist, you might want to review your fellow machinists. Yeah, this is very much a teamwork-based industry. You get some good information that way. And one of the things that I talked about a lot in all of these reviews is your performance, your results, and your KPIs aren't 100% 100% controlled by just what you can choose to do. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, you have to like influence others, make sure you have good teamwork, make sure right. you're getting support from the service team and the inside sales team, make sure you have that close relationship with the product manager if you're a regional guy or vice versa. So when you do these peer reviews, should they be anonymous? I don't know. I'm torn. I kind of think that they should be. Yeah, I think for like the official... Because you don't want to say like, hey, Joe said this about you, Bob. But you know what's kind of hard about the anonymous thing is like if there's two people or three people or four, but you can kind of figure out who said what. And then there's also the flip side of like, well, let's have an open, honest culture where you can challenge each other when you need it. I mean, I feel like I have that culture at my company, but like, yeah, hopefully you can get to the point where, yeah, that's the type of culture that you have where you can actually be like, yeah, I mean, like what he said about me is true and I do need to make that improvement. And if you don't have that, that's a problem. I think it should be like not 100% anonymous and not 100% specific. Yeah. You need to keep those peer reviews, I think, short and sweet. Yeah. I think the peer review should be shorter than the reviews between like a boss and their subordinate. So do you feel like the peer review should impact the compensation or that anything in these reviews should impact the compensation for the individual? Everything impacts compensation. Yeah. I don't think that there should be a direct compensation conversation related to that, but I think that of course is always going to. Yeah, I agree. So I think the anonymous part goes more with the fact that it could impact compensation. Mm -hmm. Because you may say like, okay, one of my colleagues isn't doing very well, but I don't want to say it because like, I don't want to take money out of his bonus or whatever, or her bonus or whoever it is. So it's like, yeah, that's where it's like, hey, we're just going to talk. Like, how do they support you in this area, that area, whatever. And then I, as the person giving the official review, would like reference kind of what the peers said and areas where they can improve the teamwork. So I think also that the peer review, and again, I didn't really do this very officially, but I think the peer review should be more loose and conversational than structured and specific. And then you could just kind of like pull out themes. Five people kind of have the same theme about someone's performance. That's probably pretty valid. So So I've got some thoughts as far as this goes. I know from my standpoint, I always kind of like throw myself on the sword as far as these things go. And I'll like go to my team and be like, look, I haven't been a good leader. I haven't been doing these reviews. You probably want these reviews. You want me to be honest with you doing it more formally. So like, I think if you haven't done these types of reviews, just start. You know what I mean? Just apologize and be like, I haven't done these. I want to start just so you don't make it awkward. There's a way to introduce this without making it awkward and be like, okay, I haven't done it. I should have been doing this. It's a normal thing that a leader should be doing. And we're going to start in this. How we're going to do it. And we're going to try to conduct it in a way that is going to be easy to manage and just do it. You want to serve your people, right? Yeah. And I have a little story that shows how important this is. Many of you who are listening are owners of the company and Maybe you're an owner and you get a review. Maybe you're an owner and you don't. But like when someone gives you a review, that matters a ton because you spend a lot of your life at work and you really want to know how you're doing. And I had an employee who became a regional salesperson. And before that, he worked in our grinding department and he was the supervisor of the grinding department running a machine. And so he'd worked for the company for like over 30 years and he had always had reviews and reviews were always kind of like attached to compensation. Like you'd give the review and then you'd be like, here's what you get basically. And then when he moved into sales, like sales is just salary plus commission. So there was, you don't really get the same type of bonus or increase or whatever. And 
no one was giving him reviews. So then I inherited the sales leadership role six, seven years ago or whatever. And he's like, I haven't gotten a review in three years. Does anyone even care? And I was just like, you know what? It really is important. And it's Mm -hmm. probably more important to have that conversation about the performance than just, yeah, I got to go through all this crap. And then I find out what my money is. So it matters to people. And I think it's a service to your staff, your employees, and even to yourself to like put the time in to give the reviews. Nice. I love it. I think this could be a wake up call for some manufacturing leaders to be like, okay, it's time to start. It could be simple. Keep it simple and just get started. So uh, this is good, Nick. I like. I'm definitely going to forward this episode to Mike, who's going to be handling this and managing all the administrative part of it. And I think that this will be a good head start for him to get going in 2023. Well, awesome. And just so you know, just the Metalworking Nation knows we are recording this before 20. 20- 22 ends, but two days. Yeah. By the time you're hearing this, it is going to be 2023, but either way, just get started. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of reviews, that's something that we care about. Yeah, we care about. This is how you tell us that we're doing a good job. So you go to Apple Podcasts, you go to Spotify, you go to what else is there? Stitcher. Yeah, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. I don't know, whatever. Just directly from our website, you can email us. Whatever podcast player that you have, there's got to be a way in order to rate and review the podcast you have. Go on there, give us five stars. If you think that we suck and you don't want to give us five stars, just don't leave a review. But if you do (laughs) like us and you do want to give us five stars, go ahead and do it. Make a comment. Let us know who your favorite host is. It's going to be me. I I know it. It's going to be Jason. And tell us what you want to hear about from Making Chips because we do really care about what the Metalworking Nation says. And I mean, we're 340 some episodes into this Making Chips journey, but we need your ideas. We want this to be about the Metalworking Nation. And so we want to hear back from you. And that's something that we've done consistently is like when we get great feedback, hey, talk about this. Or sometimes we'll get someone who kind of disagrees with us and wants to make a point and we'll make an episode out of it. And you know what we've also done always, Nick? We've ended the episode by saying, if you're not making chips, you're not making money. Bam. Bam. Thanks for listening to the Making Chips podcast. Jim and Jason knew that the metalworking nation, the community of world-class makers, needed to commit to a new way of leading to stay ahead of the competition. So, Making Chips was created to fill that void, to give you advice from other manufacturing leaders who can push you to take action. Your manufacturing challenges have a solution. And many of them are at makingchips.com.